You guys already know who I am, so I don't need an, don't need an introduction. <laughs> well, it's a joy to be with you this morning and a privilege to stand behind a pulpit that has uh, represented faithful biblical exposition for just shy of a quarter century. Uh, praise God for Pastor Leek and the ministry of Hope Bible Church, and uh, we pray often for you at Baltimore uh, Bible Church and for the Leek family, and just want you to know that we're standing with you. And uh, I want to say uh, uh, happy anniversary uh, next week, another anniversary for Hope Bible Church. Actually, uh, this Sunday is our anniversary at Baltimore Bible Church. It's eight years that we're celebrating uh, today, so <laughs> praise God. Thank you. So uh, for, forgive me if I have to run out soon after uh, I finish here because uh, I'm going to be heading to our anniversary service uh, there in Baltimore. Uh, but it's an honor and a privilege uh, to be with you and to open up the Word of God together. And uh, this morning we'll be turning our attention to the large gift contained in the small package of the book of Ruth. So I'll give you some time to find it in your Bibles there. The book of Ruth is a short book and it uh, really serves as the bridge between the times of the judges and the times of the kings. Uh, you'll find it between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. Uh, but even though it's a small book, it contains a weighty message, and it's full of practical instruction and theological truth. It's an immensely practical book uh, that deals with ordinary hardships. It deals with the, the grief of losing a spouse, uh, the sorrow over losing a child, the concern for physical provision, and the pain of barrenness. Uh, the book of Ruth is also a book that speaks to common people. Uh, the primary characters in the book of Ruth aren't warriors, kings, and prophets, uh, but people like wives and mothers and workers and small business owners, you know, blue-collar people. It's also a book that records ordinary events, ordinary occurrences. Do you know that within the entire book of, of Ruth that there's not one miracle recorded in the entire book of Ruth? There's no talking donkeys, no manna from heaven, no water coming out of a rock, none of that. In addition to that, uh, even though this book is inspired by God, we don't have one direct word from God in it. There's not a word from a prophet, not a message from heaven. There's no vision from God. None of that shows up in the book of Ruth. I mean, Ruth doesn't even get touched by an angel. We have this, this book that we know comes from the Lord, uh, but we don't have, you know, these miraculous displays of God's power within the book of Ruth. But that doesn't mean that God is any less present in the book of Ruth. And that's an important observation for us to make because sometimes we can be tempted to think that just because God is not parting the Red Seas, that God is not at work. And I'll give you a fancy word for that, a fancy theological word. It's the word concurrence. And uh, that word just means just to simplify this for you, that when things are working, that God is also working. Both are happening at the same time, concurrently. So when the sun rises upon the earth, it's God who causes the sun to rise. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. When the rain falls upon the earth, it's God who sends the rain on the earth. Psalm 135, verse 7 says, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. Speaking about the, the water cycle in that, that instance. And something as insignificant as a blade of grass can be traced back to the hand of God. Why? Because Psalm 104 and verse 14 says, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle. So, so even the, the hamburger that you'll grill later on tonight, this evening, that is God's hamburger, okay? That's God's hamburger. And what this means for us is that when Ruth arrives in Bethlehem, and find shelter under the wings of a man named Boaz, it's not just Boaz who gives her shelter, it's the Lord who shelters Ruth under his wings. The, the book of Ruth is more than just a, a love story about Boaz and Ruth. The book of Ruth is a story about the, the love story between us and God. This is more than just a, you know, a Hallmark movie with a romantic ending. It's, it's bigger than that, it's deeper than that, and if you miss that, you'll Missed the, the theological significance behind the, the book of, of Ruth. Just listen to this. Even Boaz himself recognized that God was at work behind the scenes. He knew that this story was bigger than, than him. Uh, God was in the details, and that's the connection that Boaz makes for Ruth back in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 12, where he says to Ruth, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, 
under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And if we don't understand that connection, we won't appreciate the significance that this story has for every one of us who has trusted in God. Uh, This story is just one demonstration of what God does for those who seek refuge in him. And if we're connecting all the dots, we'll be able to trace the line from the earthly redeemer to the heavenly redeemer because he's the one who provides us with ultimate security, provision, and rest. And just to focus our attention today and uh, uh, to get the the context in our minds, uh, we'll be taking a look at chapter four, but I'll start at chapter one. Just to remind you of the context, Ruth chapter one, starting at verse one. Follow with me as I read. Since now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were of Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you, Lord. Father, recognizing that you are the God of this book, Father, that you're the author of this word, and Father, as we approach this book, Father, we want to recognize that it's you who gives us understanding. Uh, So Father, I pray that you would open up our understanding, that we would behold wonderful things in your law. Uh, Father, that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts, transform us by your word. Let us not walk away unchanged. Help us to change in our thinking, in our direction, in our focus. And Father, I pray that you would help me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Ruth has been regarded by scholars as literary art and theological insight at its finest. Uh, One commentator called Ruth one of the most delightful literary compositions of the ancient world, and I believe that's very true. Uh, The book of Ruth contains all the drama and suspense and cliffhangers that you would expect to see in any modern-day film or television series. Uh, When you open up the, the book of Ruth, Uh, The very first verse sets the scene for us. Uh, Ruth chapter one, verse one. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed. Uh, That's like opening up a book by saying that it was a dark and a stormy night and you're just expecting that something's about to go down. You should be expecting that because the time of the judges was not a good time. Uh, The period of the judges from around 1370 BC to 1041 BC uh, was a dark time in Israel's history. It takes place during, uh, after the the death of of Joshua, when Israel was in this downward spiral, cycling through these repeated patterns of deliverance and then sin and then judgment again. The period of the judges was the worst of days. And we expect that something bad is going to happen in this book, and indeed it does. In chapter one, it opens up with this family from Bethlehem traveling to the land of Moab in search of food during the famine, and a dad mom, two sons. But by the time we get to verse three, the dad dies. And then the two sons try to pick up the pieces of this fragmented family. And then in verse five, two sons die. And then we're left with three bereaved widows in a pagan land without provision, without protection. A widow in the ancient Near East was a woman who had been completely divested of a male protector. Often a widow was left without money, without influence, without protection, which was a dangerous place to be during this time. Legally, widows were often ignored because they had no influence. There really wasn't any personal benefit to helping out a widow. So they often had to plead for justice to happen. Actually, Jesus uses the image of a widow over in Luke chapter 18 and verse three, where he says there was a widow in that city. She kept coming to him, this unjust judge, saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. And she kept coming and asking for legal protection. Protect me. Why did she have to keep coming? The answer is obvious. It's because nobody was paying attention to her. Widows were also taken advantage of financially. They were were often in a position of financial need. They became easy targets for lenders, those who would lend to them and demand much more in return. 
They would even take the cloaks off of their backs until they could pay their loans in full. Deuteronomy 24, 17 says, You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in a pledge. You don't take that woman's cloak and allow her to sleep in the cold while you're waiting for your money back. That's wrong. They could even be the subjects of physical mistreatment. Exodus 22 and verse 22 says, You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. Don't mistreat them. Don't afflict them. And the book of Ruth opens up with not just one widow, but three widows. Three widows. And the immediate question becomes, where are they going to find provision and protection? That's the question. Or is the story going to end in a tragedy in Moab? That's the cliffhanger that's at the end of chapter 1. Where are these widows going to find provision and protection? One widow goes back to Moab, but the other two return to the land of Bethlehem to find provision and protection there. But it's more than just returning to Bethlehem, like I said. It's returning to the God of Bethlehem. And that's what Ruth recognizes, Ruth chapter 1 and verse 16. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And what? Your God, my God. Your God, my God. Ruth confesses her confidence in God to be her provider and protector. Don't miss that. This widow is trusting in God. Flip over to chapter 2. Chapter 2. In chapter 2, we learn that God provides for their immediate need and provision through a man named Boaz. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Boaz became this immediate answer for their provision and protection. But again, this was by God's doing in the context for this provision was already laid out in Scripture. Actually, God is the one who made provisions for widows within the Word of God. There are basically three ways that widows were provided for in ancient Israel. Uh, One way was they could be taken care of by their grown sons. Uh, The Old Testament commanded uh, the children of Israel to honor their father and mother uh, in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12, and that honor included taking care of your parents when they were unable to take care of themselves, which is exactly what Jesus pointed to in a dispute with the Pharisees back in Mark chapter 7, verses 10 to 13. They were trying to get out of their responsibility to take care of their aging parents. You know, hey, whatever I would have given to you is dedicated to the Lord. And Jesus says, why are you trying to get around the clear teaching of the word of God to honor your traditions? Follow the word of God. Take care of your parents. Honor your parents. Another way that God provided for widows was also through remarriage. In ancient Israel, there was this uh, practice of leverite marriage where a younger widow could be taken care of by marrying her deceased husband's brother. You find that in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 6, when it says, when brothers live together, one of them dies, has no son. The wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her to himself as wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So the picture here is if a a man dies without sons, and the sons would have taken care of this widow, right? But if he dies, he has no sons, no sons to take care of that widow. The brother would take that widow to take care of her and raise up sons in the place of his brother. You know, so hopefully you you really got along with your sister-in-law because, uh, you know, if your brother dies, that could be yours. You know, she's all yours. But it was God's expectation that younger widows marry. 1 Timothy 5.14, therefore I want younger widows to get married. And the third way that widows were cared for was through the different laws for charity in Israel. There was actually a, a restriction in Israel against harvesting your entire crop. You weren't supposed to pick your crops clean, you know, leaving nothing behind. You're supposed to leave something behind for the orphan, for the widow, for the foreigner. Leviticus 19 verses 9 to 10 says, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, Nor shall you gather the gleanings or the leftovers of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. Vineyard, You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. They were supposed to leave the the leftovers for those who needed them. Don't don't pick up the last grape, you know. Leave, leave, Leave something there for those who are coming behind. Why? So that orphans, widows, visitors, foreigners could eat. But that was the final provision. When everything else failed, then you depended on the charity of others to provide for you. 
and you went out to work in the fields and you gleaned the leftovers for a living. And this is where Naomi was. Naomi was in that final category. She didn't have any sons. She was too old to get married again. And now she's left the charity. You know, there's people who have to have compassion on me. I'm looking for compassion at this point. And she finds compassion with this man named Boaz and Ruth who helped to glean for her. And Ruth just happens to stumble across this field of a man named Boaz. Just so happens, just so happens. And Boaz, according to Old Testament law, was required to leave the leftovers. But Boaz did much more than what he was required to do, right? You remember the story. Boaz wasn't required by law to speak to a woman who was a foreigner and an enemy of the nation of Israel. He wasn't required to do that. He spoke to her, verse 8 says in chapter 2, as a daughter. He spoke to her kindly, tenderly. He wasn't required to invite this widow to stay with him, Ruth the Moabite. He wasn't required to do that, but he invited her to stay. He wasn't required to offer her his protection, but he did that. Verse 9, indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. You'll be safe here. He wasn't required to provide supper in verse 14 and feed her from his own hand, but that's in fact what he did. And he was not required to purposefully pull out from his harvest and drop it on the floor. He was just required to leave the leftovers. He purposefully left more on the ground just so she could glean more grain. None of that was required. But like we mentioned earlier, God was at work. God was at work. And when Boaz was providing, it was God who was providing. And what amazing grace we find in the life of Boaz to give to Ruth. The Moabites would have been considered one of the enemies of God's people. But this woman, Ruth, who was the daughter-in-law of Naomi, who should have been considered an enemy, was now seated at his table. We sang it earlier, didn't we? Once an enemy, now seated at your table. This is what we find in the book of Ruth. And because of the kindness of Boaz, Ruth was able to glean in one day enough food to last for one to two months. Look at verse 17. Look at verse 17 in chapter two. It says, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And I know that means a whole lot to you, an ephah of barley. You know, that just, that just means so much. That just, that just touches my heart, right? You know, an ephah of barley. What was an ephah of barley? An ephah of barley could have weighed as much as 30 to 50 pounds of weight. That was enough for one to two months worth of provision for her and her, her mother-in-law. So there, there was no question about whether or not there was an immediate answer to protection and provision. That was provided for her with Boaz. Boaz answered that question. But there's another cliffhanger at the end of chapter two. And that question is, where will she find permanent protection and provision? Permanent protection and provision. Just because Ruth and Naomi were safe for one or two months, what about months three and four? What about months five, six, and seven? What about next year? Are they going to be permanently provided for just because they had been provided for one to two months? What, what happens after this? So the question in chapter three becomes, where are they going to find a permanent place for protection and provision? You know, you could put it a, another way. You know, once saved, am I always saved? <laughs> and that's exactly how Ruth chapter three, verse one opens up. Look at chapter three, verse one. It says, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you. I know we're good for one or two months, but, but, but you need a place of permanent security. That's the question chapter three opens up with. In other words, Naomi realizes that, that Ruth needs more than just a temporary solution. If nothing changes, you're going to be in the same position next year. We're both gonna be in a fix. That word security was used of a, a place of tranquility, repose, and Naomi used it back in chapter 1, verse 9, for the rest that would be found in the house of a husband. That's how she used it. And when you read through the rest of chapter 3, that's exactly what Naomi was seeking for, for Ruth, as a younger widow, that she would get married. Chapter 3 in, in Ruth is all about this marriage proposal. And uh, if you're familiar with the story, it's kind of a strange marriage proposal. Naomi instructs her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to find out where Boaz was working 
wait for him to go to sleep, and while he's sleeping, uncover his feet and just lay there and wait until he tells you what to do. There's a lot of principles that we can gain from the Word of God about dating and marriage and finding a spouse, but, but this, this is not one that you want to try to put into practice. You know, the, the, the barefoot dating service, you know, just find a guy, rip his shoes off, and just see what he tells you. He might tell you to get lost, right? But this is a special situation, special situation, because what we find in verse 2 of chapter 3 is that Boaz was in the position of a helper. He was a kinsman. That makes all the difference. It's, it's not like Naomi would have just given this advice to, to anybody. He says, she says that this is a, a special person. He's a, he's a kinsman. Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maid you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Boaz's position as a kinsman made the difference. In this context, being a, a kinsman in, in the Old Testament context, that person was uh, given certain rights, responsibilities, and privileges. According to Leviticus 25, a kinsman had the right to buy a family member out of slavery. If you were in slavery, the kinsman had that responsibility to go and buy you out. According to Numbers 35, a kinsman could avenge a family member's death. You know, if one of the family members died, the kinsman would go out and make sure that justice was met. According to Leviticus 25, again, if a person became so poor that they had to sell their property, the kinsman would go out and buy that property back to make sure that it stayed within the family. That's what the kinsman did. And we've already seen, according to Deuteronomy 25, if a, a man died leaving no heir, that the, the relative, the brother in that case, and would also pass on to the nearest relative, would come and make sure that that widow was taken care of. All that belonged to the kinsman redeemer. And that's the context of Naomi's plan. She says, Boaz is a kinsman. He's, he's a near relative of ours. Maybe he will take care of us. Maybe the permanent solution can be found with him. And that's the context for Naomi's plan. Chapter 3, verse 11. Now, my daughter, do not fear. This is how Boaz responds to her request. Don't fear, daughter. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And you say, this is, this is the end. You know, finally, there's a permanent place of provision, protection. It's going to be found with Boaz. This is exactly what we were hoping for. And just when you think that Prince Charming is about to give Sleeping Beauty a kiss and they'll live happily ever after and, you know, just kind of ride off into the sunset, the dragon shows up out of nowhere. Look at verse, verse 12, chapter 3. He says, now it is true I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. And at that point, your, your heart just sinks. You know, we, we want her to be with Boaz. You know, where, where did this guy come from? We haven't seen hide or hair of this guy the entire book. Ruth and Naomi showed up at the beginning of barley harvest. At this point, they're at the end of barley and wheat harvest, which would have been three months later. Three months, we haven't seen this nearest relative. But now all of a sudden... You know, Boaz says, hey, there's a, a guy who's nearer to you than me. You know, yeah, I'd love to be the closest relative, but there's, there's a guy in line before me. But don't, don't worry, we'll make sure that you're, you're taken care of. So the question that's left at the end of chapter 3, because, because there's something that's still, that's still missing, right? Because we, we know that she'll be taken care of. There's a, a relative out there that might take care of her, but, but we don't want her to just be with any relative. We want her to be with the relative who actually loves her. Who cares about her? So that's the question left at the end of chapter 3. The question is this, will Ruth be provided and protected by a husband who actually loves her and is willing to sacrifice himself for her? Or will the Moabite princess be forced to marry the villain who hasn't shown any interest in her for three long months while she and her mother-in-law suffered? Is she going to be with somebody who actually cares about her? You get the picture? That's the cliffhanger at the end of chapter 3. And why do we care about that? Because it makes sense to us that the one who redeems us would also be the one who loves us. And you can receive the benefit of protection and provision without receiving the benefit of love. We all understand that there are people who can be motiva motivated by a lot less than love, right? Right? For example, your, your employer may give you a benefit, you know, like uh, 
health insurance, disability insurance, retirement benefits. But that doesn't mean that he loves you. He, he might love you, but then again, he might not. <laughs> Your government may give you a benefit. They may cut you a stimulus check. But that doesn't mean that your government loves you. They, they might love you, but then again, they might not. And even though marriage is meant to be the closest and the most holy and the most fundamental of all human relationships, history is filled with examples of people who receive the benefits of marriage, but not the benefits of love. And you have to look no further than the woman by the name of Leah, who was not Jacob's first choice for a spouse. Jacob was tricked into marrying Leah, and even though she received the benefits of marriage, she didn't receive the benefits of love. Genesis 29, verse 31 says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. That's, that's the nice way to put it. The Hebrew word is actually hated. The sad reality is that you could be redeemed, you could be provided for, you could be protected, but it didn't necessarily mean that the one who provided for you and protected you actually loved you. And at this point in the story, we don't know if she's going to end up with the hero or with the villain. But Boaz is determined to settle that business today. And this takes us to chapter four. Chapter four. That's just a long introduction, right? <laughs> chapter four. Don't worry, I won't keep you too long. I got places to go. Chapter four. Look at verse one. Ruth chapter four, verse one. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. And here they gathered at the gates of the city. In ancient times, cities were walled in for their own protection. Uh, the primary characteristic of a, of a city that distinguished a city from a village is that a city was walled in and a village was not. So a city was a place where People gathered and uh, the city gates uh, where the city was protected were, was where people gathered uh, for the, just kind of meeting, uh, to uh, give goods, to kind of distribute goods and things like that. It protected their, their boundaries, their, uh, their, their boundaries around the, the city. Uh, the gate was, was fortified, it was a place of security. And the, the gates that they entered in weren't like these white picket fences. There were the massive, these massive structures that you get into through different chambers Actually, when uh, uh, Jennifer and I uh, went to, to Israel a number of years ago, we actually went with the, the leaks, uh, Tom and Sue uh, went with us to, to Israel, and we walked through some of these massive structures, these ancient gates uh, that would have been uh, the, the way that you would enter in and out of these cities. So the, the gates became a place of business, a place of meeting, these large structures. You know, official proclamations were given at the gates. Uh, for example, in Joshua 20, uh, when the cities of refuge were set up, uh, to protect men who wrongfully and accidentally, you know, were charged with uh, maybe murder. Uh, Joshua 20 verse 4 said, He shall flee to one of these cities, shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city, and state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city. It was where official business took place. The elders at the gate were considered the judges of the city. They gave the official word. So when Boaz approaches the gates of Bethlehem, it's because he wants the official word on Ruth. What is the official word on this woman? He's determined to settle this business today, once and for all. And the close relative of whom Boaz spoke about was passing by. So he says, come on, friend, we've got some business to take care of. And he gets 10 elders to make sure that he gets the official word. And there's no shred of evidence, like I said, that this man cares at all about Ruth, but he's going to ask her about Ruth and Naomi. Boaz brings him out of hiding. This, this guy who's been hiding out for three long months brings him out of hiding. And he says, turn aside, friend. Come over here and, and sit down. Gathers the, the elders. He says, sit down. And there, there's some debate about why he chose 10. Uh, there's actually some Jewish commentators that let us know that 10 people were required for the blessing of a bride and a groom. Uh, so Boaz likely wanted this meeting to end with the marriage. So he gets 10 elders, make sure that he has the right number to make sure that this is the official word on the marriage between him and Ruth. So he, he gathers them together. And then he speaks up, look at verse 3. So then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. 
But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And you wonder, it's like, did, did Boaz like bump his head between verse 2 and verse 3? Like, I thought this was about the marriage of Ruth. Like, like what's he asking about the land for? Boaz has a plan, okay? Give him the benefit of the doubt. Boaz has a plan. Like we mentioned before, the nearest relative had certain rights, privileges, and responsibilities. They had the, the right to buy a family member out of slavery, avenge a family member's death, to buy back what the relative might have sold and lost to make sure it stayed within the family, and also to take the, the spouse of a dead relative. All of these responsibilities fell to the kinsmen. So Boaz starts with the land. It's, it, he's got a sneak attack, okay? All of these responsibilities fell to the kinsman and redeemer. So he starts with the, the land. He says, you know, basically it's his way to say, are, are you ready to assume the responsibilities that fall to you as the nearest relative? And without hesitation, he says, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, more land. I, I'm all for that. I, I want to expand my borders. You know, things are getting tight for me and the family. I'd love some more property. Nice, fine piece of property. I'd love that. And if at this point you haven't read the rest of the story, your heart is sinking like, no. <laughs> Don't take it. Why? Because you know that if he gets the land, he gets the lady. <laughs> if he gets the ground, he gets the girl. Because he's assuming the responsibility. So, again, why is that a problem? Because he does not love Ruth. He doesn't care for Ruth. He doesn't care for Naomi. So does the villain get the princess? Look at verse 5. And you see that this is all a setup. The relative is set up. Look at verse 5. It says, then Boaz said, oh, you know, by the way, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth. And let me just remind you who Ruth is. The Moabitess. <laughs> I mean, she's from that foreign enemy nation. You know, the Moabitess the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. You know, you, you got to make some babies with this foreign lady. The closest relative said, I, I can't redeem it for myself because I, I would jeopardize my own inheritance. You know, redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption. I, I, can't, I can't redeem it. Here this nearest relative thought he was getting some free land, but he didn't know that it came with some strings attached and a commitment. He didn't know about this commitment that Ruth made the night before with Boaz saying like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be married. I, I want to fulfill that role of the person to whom is redeemed by the kinsman redeemer. I, I want to fulfill that role. He, she, he didn't know about that. Like I said, if you're going to take the role of this kinsman redeemer, you have to take on the full responsibility. And Boaz understood the full responsibility the elders understood the full responsibility, but this nearest relative wasn't willing to take on the full responsibility. Look what he says in verse 6. I, I can't redeem it. I, I jeopardize my own inheritance. What does he mean by that? Maybe he already has kids and he doesn't want to share this inheritance with somebody else. Maybe taking care of a, a widow and her mother was more than he wanted to, to pay for. It cut into his profits. In addition to that, if he had a child with Ruth, Guess who gets the inheritance after he dies? If he had any kids, it didn't go to them. It went to the kids of Ruth. That's where it went. The nearest relative wanted the inheritance, but he didn't want the sacrifice. He was willing to expand his borders, but he wasn't willing to expand his heart. He wanted the wealth, but not the widow. He was in it for himself. What can I get out of this deal? This redeemer was not willing to sacrifice himself. And before I leave this point, aren't we thankful that we have a redeemer who is willing to sacrifice himself for us. Like I said, don't, don't miss the bigger picture. This, this is about, about God, the redeemer. Don't miss the bigger picture. We have a redeemer who is willing to sacrifice himself for us. Jesus wasn't just interested in the stuff of the universe. He was interested in us as his inheritance. Psalm 2 verse 8 the father says, ask of me and I will surely give to you the nations. Speaking about the people, I'll give you the nations as an inheritance and the very ends of the earth is your possession. And Jesus was willing to make the sacrifice in order to gain the nations. 
Psalm 33, verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. We are the inheritance of the Lord, and he was willing to make a sacrifice in order to gain us. And our Redeemer not only loved us, he was willing to sacrifice himself for us, and he impoverished himself in order to do it. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 says, For you know, that the grace, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through, your, through his poverty you might become rich. He was willing to sacrifice himself. Galatians 2.20, the Son of God who loved me and did what? Gave himself up for me. He sacrificed himself for me. Ephesians 5.25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. He was willing to sacrifice himself. We have a redeemer who was willing to sacrifice himself and give his life away. 20th century, century uh, theologian Herbin Bavink defined God's love as the goodness of God that not only conveys certain benefits, but God himself. John Frame speaks of God's love saying it's his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures, his unselfish concern for their well-being that leads him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and welfare. And MacArthur in his systematic theology defined God's love as God's determination to give of himself to himself and to others and his affection for himself and for his people. And all these definitions recognize that God's love is more than just giving benefits. It's God giving himself away, sacrificing himself. God gives himself away in redeeming love, and that's the kind of love that Boaz had for Ruth. He was giving himself away. We don't just want Ruth to be redeemed. We want Ruth to be redeemed by somebody who loves her. And Boaz was making, willing to make that sacrifice. And if we didn't have this part of the narrative, we could assume that acquiring Naomi's property, marrying Ruth, was, was all gain for Boaz. But this was actually a sacrifice on Boaz's part. When he said, I do, it came at a cost. And Boaz was willing to pay the price for the joy that was set before him. Just like our Savior, Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Boaz was willing to pay the price for the joy of having Ruth. And the nearest relative was shamed for his refusal to take up that responsibility. And there's a different commentators who wrestle with uh, what's really going on here, but take a look at verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 down in chapter 4. It says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. If this nearest relative was a brother, and actually, why don't you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 25 for me. Deuteronomy chapter 25. If this nearest relative was a brother of Elimelech or brother of uh, uh, Malon or Kilion, it would have been a, a much worse kind of shame that he would have endured. Look at Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, look at verse 7. says here, but if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. <laughs> And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now, uh, this, this nearest relative was spared from the spittle, okay? He's spared from being spit in the face because he's not a brother. But he still has the dishonor of having his shoe removed. So he's still considered the house of him whose sandal is removed. It's still a shame to this man that he did not take up the responsibility of caring for a widow. That's shameful. Shameful not to take care of a widow. 
And again, this nearest relative wasn't a brother, but what he did was shameful. He still called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Why? Because he refused a noble duty in order to protect himself and protect his inheritance. You know, instead of uh, taking care of the widow, we got to count up the, the dollars and cents, right? We got to make sure that we have enough. But there's another way that we know this man was shamed. Another way we know that it was shameful for this man not to take care of the widow. You ever uh, pick up what the name of this guy was? Anybody? His name is not introduced. We're just told in chapter 3 and verse 12, there's a relative closer than I. And then we meet him in chapter 4 and verse 1, and it says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend. Doesn't even speak to him by name. And that word friend is not the, the normal word for friend. It's a Hebrew expression, poloni almoni, which could be translated Mr. So-and-so. You know, Mr. Mr. What's-his-face, you know. Whatchamacallit, Mr. Whatchamacallit, that guy. He doesn't have a name. And Boaz knows what his name is. This is a close relative, but he doesn't even refer to him by name. Mr. Mr. Whatchamacallit, come on over here. He's a close relative, but we don't have a name for him. And one commentator says this, why would the narrator, who is otherwise so careful with names, keep this character anonymous? Whatever the motivation, the effect is to diminish our respect for him. He may be the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, but he will shortly be dismissed as irrelevant to the central theme of the book, the preservation of the royal line. He doesn't care for the widow and his name is forever scrubbed from the record. We don't even know who he is. So in this effort to protect his name and protect his inheritance, he lost his name, lost his rights for all perpetuity. What an exchange. What an exchange. Totally lost everything. And isn't that the same kind of loss that people experience when they refuse to follow Christ? They, they, they try to preserve themselves, protect themselves, and end up losing everything. Whoever wishes to save his life will what? Lose it. Lose it. This guy lost his life. He lost everything. He lost his name. In exchanging something temporary, you know, what he wanted was temporary. He lost what was, would have been eternal. He wasn't willing to make the exchange. To have your name blotted out of the history of Israel was like suffering extinction. It's like you didn't even exist. And sadly, there are many people make that kind of choice for what's temporary, just what they can see. They make an exchange for what's temporary. When the role is called up yonder, there won't be a Mr. What's-His-Face on the list. There's only the people who have signed up, right? The people who are willing to make a sacrifice to say, yes, I, I want to be counted. I want to be, be part of that family. This guy loses everything, lost it all. Mr. What's-His-Face disappears from the record, and he serves as an illustration for all those who make the the wrong choice. So the relative steps out. Boaz steps up. Look at verse 9. Boaz steps up here. He, he redeems the land, verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. You know, whether he was uh, rescuing Naomi from having to sell her property or had to buy her property back, Boaz now takes possession of all that once belonged to the family. And because he's a relative of Elimelech, he's able to, to keep the property in the family name, doesn't go outside the family, which was an important aspect of the Mosaic law, and he redeems their land and he, he resurrects their name. Look at verse 10. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife. Malon's name is now risen up. It's like he's resurrected from the dead. The widow of Malon to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are my witnesses. You're witnesses today. If Malon survived the son of Elimelech, this property would have belonged to him. But it was robbed by death, and Boaz says, I'm going to raise up his name again. Raise up his name. This is his inheritance. Wonderful story, right? But we're left with at least one more cliffhanger. One more, one more. And you probably missed it, but look at verse 10. He says, Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife 
in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And that would have happened through children, right? Think about this. Boaz is saying that I'm, I'm fully ready to raise up seed, to raise up a child in the place of Malon, Elimelech. I'm, I'm ready to raise up his name. But Ruth was married to Malon for at least 10 years in Moab, and guess what she doesn't have? She doesn't have any kids. <laughs> Ruth up until this point was barren. Now, Mo, Boaz here is saying, hey, I'm, I'm willing to raise up an inheritance for you on this land, but Ruth hasn't been able to have kids up until this point. And that's the cliffhanger at the end of chapter 4. Will Ruth be able to produce any offspring? Or will the name of the deceased be cut off from his brothers and from the place of his birth? There's these prayers in verse 11 and 12, prayers of well wishes for a full house. Look at verse 11 and 12. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, productive women, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. But unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it, right? And there's this moment of suspense because Ruth was barren for 10 years and the line is still in jeopardy unless she's able to have offspring. But there was a baby boy who was born in Bethlehem who saved the family line. And a family was spared from being wiped out of existence through this seed. And there's so much more that we could say here, but do you know that there was another boy born in Bethlehem? (laughs) The, The word Bethlehem means house of bread. There was the living bread that was born in Bethlehem. And he saved the family line. When Adam sinned, God had every right to wipe mankind off the face of the earth. Would have been his right to do so. But beloved, we have a redeemer. (laughs) One who was born and one who provides us with an inheritance. I mentioned earlier that if we don't understand the connection between the earthly redeemer and the heavenly one, we'll miss the point. But in this little town of Bethlehem, there came another redeemer. And he's the one who provides us with ultimate security protection, and rest. And the book of Ruth ends with this line, gives us this line. Many people call this the, you know, the sleeping pills of the the Old Testament. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 18. You know, if you ever have have a problem falling asleep, you know, just try this on for size. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. I I know that that's your life verse right there, you know, that that you've just memorized that. Anytime you're feeling discouraged, it's like, oh, you know, Aminadab, and Nashon, and Salmon, oh, I just, just feel so encouraged by these names. Sleeping pills of the Old Testament. But why don't you turn with me to the book of Matthew? Book of Matthew. Take a look at verse 16. Matthew chapter 1. Actually, I'll start back at verse 3. Verse 3. Matthew chapter 1, look at verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab. I think I've, I think I've heard that name before. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. That, that was my life verse. I remember that. I was, I was really encouraged by that. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king And then down in verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. The book of Ruth leads us from the earthly redeemer straight to the heavenly redeemer. The one who provides us with ultimate security, provision, and rest is found in the book of Ruth. We needed somebody who would would be born in our line. We needed somebody who was born in our line to redeem us. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus wasn't ashamed to call us his brothers. We needed one who had the resources to redeem us, and Jesus has those resources. Just like Boaz had the resources to provide for Ruth, we have a redeemer who has the resources to provide for us. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished, the spotless and spotless, the blood of Christ. And we needed one who was willing to redeem us, and Jesus was willing to render his life as a guilt offering for us. Willingly lay down his life. John 10, verse 18. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Jesus was willing to be our sacrifice. And we find in Jesus more than a redeemer, we find a redeemer who loves us, right? A redeemer who loves us. John 13, verse 1 says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's the love that we have from our Savior. And Romans 8, 39 says that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. We have a redeemer who loves us. And even though we experience things in this life, the the death of a spouse, the death of a child, experience hardship, we have one that will never leave us or forsake us. Amen? Amen? There's a hymn writer, William Cooper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, William Cooper, who wrote these famous and powerful lines in the hymn, There is a Fountain. Listen to this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. So all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. And listen to what he says. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. We have a redeeming love. Not just a redeemer, we have a lover. A redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Ruth is more than just a simple love story. It's the story about God's love for us, for those that he chooses to redeem. And it just makes sense that the one who redeems us would love us, right? Galatians 2.20, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Redeeming love shall be my theme and shall be till I die. Lover of my soul. We sang it earlier, right? Lover of my soul, I want to live for you. Amen. Let's close uh, our time in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this time in your word. Now, Father, I pray that you would remind us of our redeeming lover, the one who redeemed us, who loved us, who sacrificed himself for us. And seeing that line from the earthly redeemer to the heavenly redeemer, who gave up the joys of heaven to come down to the sin-cursed world so that he might be our sacrifice and voluntarily give himself up for us, that he might bring us to himself and redeem his inheritance. Father, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for our redeeming lover. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.